0: But you know, on the one hand, the media enjoys labeling him as being dishonest and not truthworthy, but yet his commitments on the campaign trail, he's very
1: honorable and very committed to honor his work. Yes, he certainly is, exactly. And I think the border wall is a perfect example of that. There was probably no single issue that animated his base more than border security and building a wall. And so he is committed to doing that. And he's going to fight with Democrats, he's gonna fight with those Republicans who don't want to get it done. He's, he, he is not going to give up. Now, he has been patient and let the Congress have time to try to figure it out, they haven't. And I think this is why you have, uh, you know, the, the tensions that we see in Washington. Hello everyone and
0: welcome to another edition of the Strong Cast. And one of my favorite people in the world who really gives um, integrity to the profession of journalism. I have a lot of respect for him and I welcome him back to the broadcast, Rob Blewey. Hey, good to see you. I'm going to you know, a- challenge you today um, and I think that you're uh, more than capable of meeting the challenge. And it's about how the branches of government work, especially the executive branch. All of us could tell from the end of last year, with Mattis resigning, um, the partial government shutdown. Um, And and just for Mattis, it's obvious it was not just the president pulling out of Syria and Afghanistan. Right. Um, It had to do with the president, it was not necessarily of faithfulness and integrity to his European allies, his relationships with Russia. Uh, Mattis just had many, many issues with the president. And so I got to thinking maybe the president never got the memo that what you say on the campaign trail is meaningless once you become president of the United States. Trump takes his word very seriously. He does. The wall, immigration, the economy, foreign policy. He said he was going to pull out of Syria. Right. He said he was going to pull out of Afghanistan. Obviously, also, the president did not get the memo is that it's not normally the role of the president to make decisions. He's just a figurehead. He doesn't disrupt. You don't get a budget deal and all of a sudden you hear from Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity and you change. That's just not the way presidents operates. So Trump really believes that he has to make these decisions. This is what he promised the American people. And in some ways, it can be very frightening. But in other ways, it's quite refreshing. What is the role of the president of the United States
1: and how has Trump changed that role? Well, you're absolutely right that I don't think anybody in Washington expected Trump to come to uh, D.C. in the White House and all of a sudden have all of these campaign promises become reality. And this is why I think he had that mantra of drain the swamp because he knew he was going to run into those obstacles right from the start. I think Trump did his best trying to identify people who could be part of his cabinet who could implement that agenda. Now we've seen in a couple of cases Rex Tillerson at the Department of State did not go about executing this, the, the approach the way that Trump uh, envisioned and he got rid of him. Uh, we're now seeing that in the Department of Defense. I think James Mattis did it in a, in a more dignified and respectful way and that he said, look, you deserve to have a secretary of defense who's going to carry out your agenda. I think to go to the heart of your question, what is the role of the president? Trump is absolutely redefining what it means because he actually is serious about implementing and carrying out the the beliefs that he has stated long past the 2016 campaign. Remember, he was talking about Syria years before on Twitter and other places. So it's not exactly a new phenomenon to have a president in the White House who believes that we shouldn't have troops in Syria. Donald Trump has been saying it for at least five years. But, you know, on the one hand,
0: the media enjoys labeling him as being dishonest and not truthworthy, but yet his commitments on the campaign trail, he's very honorable and very committed to honoring his
1: work. Yes, he certainly is, exactly. And I think the border wall is a perfect example of that. There was probably no single issue that animated his base more than border security and building a wall. And so he is committed to doing that. And he's going to fight with Democrats. He's going to fight with those Republicans who don't want to get it done. He's, he, he is not going to give up. Now, he has been patient and let the Congress have time to try to figure it out. They haven't. And I think this is why you have uh, you know the, the tensions that we see in Washington. No, 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 no. No? <laughs> I'm going to
0: disagree with you. Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, Chuck Schumer, and Nancy Pelosi all are on the same page. They never had any intention of moving funding to that wall beyond $1.5 billion. They all were on the same page. They just assumed that Trump would forget about it and he would go away. It's not just that the Democrats uh, orchestrate against him. It's the entire establishment.
1: Yeah, you're right. You're right. Th- that is true. I mean, there are people who don't want to... I mean, Paul Ryan has wanted to have an Im- a comprehensive immigration deal and not just single-handedly deal with the wall. You're absolutely correct on that. I think that there are Senate Republicans who formed that gang of eight years ago who would much rather have amnesty and everything else that comes along with it. And maybe we'll do a border wall. But we, even we saw with Ronald Reagan back in 1986, you'll remember this. Reagan agreed to a bunch of border security measures as well as an amnesty. Well, we got the amnesty. We never got any of the other border security measures because they come in and they zero out the accounts and they don't let it, they don't, don't let it follow through. I think Trump has learned that lesson. We have people like Ed Meese, a colleague of mine at the Heritage Foundation, who says, look, Reagan learned an important lesson after that, and it's you need to do border security up front before you grant amnesty and these other measures that the Democrats insist on.
0: You, you know, um, obviously, the president has enemies. Um... Because the establishment feels they know best. And one of the things that we've learned from the establishment is that their greatest joy is kicking the can down the road. Yes. They're not trying to accomplish anything with immigration, the wall. They just kick, and they're all in this bed together. And Trump has come in like a tsunami. He has. And he's disrupted everything from the legal, from every branch of government. He has absolutely exploded this place.
1: He has. Well, and look, he's challenging him on a number of fronts. I mean, he's doing it from the executive branch level, where he's getting rid of regulations, some of the very regulations that Obama spent years putting in place, I mean, to just come in and wipe them out. And and Armstrong, it's happening throughout different cabinet agencies, uh, and talking to Ben Carson at HUD. I mean, not exactly you're not exactly hearing about the front page news of HUD taking regulatory actions, but he's told us, the Daily Signal, that there are 700 regulatory actions that he wants <coughs> to take off the books. It's happening at the Department of Labor, the Department of Education, uh, undoing uh, President Obama's Dear Colleague guidance on uh, school discipline pr- procedures. Uh, HHS, look at Obamacare, the dismantling of Obamacare from the executive branch. So where they are running into problems in the legislative branch getting things done, uh, Republicans promised for, what, eight years that they would repeal Obamacare? They haven't been able to get it done? Well, Donald Trump is doing what he can, and obviously it's not as significant as you know taking it off the books from a legislative level, but I think this is frustrating people, particularly the Washington establishment that is so accustomed to having a gr- government grow and the regulatory state grow, and Donald Trump is reversing that, and that's uh, probably scary to a lot of people. Is it fair for you and I
0: in the media to say that this the establishment has weaponized the media to make Trump appear as unstable, pitches temper tantrums, explosive, nobody can work with him, and yet there is so much that he has accomplished. I, I mean, I don't like using this term, but it seems as though the establishment, because they're doing, their bidding, both Democrats and Republicans. Yeah. They've been weaponized to really take Donald Trump and weaken. His position as
1: you, president. You know, I think that the thing that uh, that really struck me was in the wake of the decision on Syria, Stephen Miller, a White House aide who, uh, you know, has been with the president throughout the campaign and, and one of his earliest staffers was on with Wolf Blitzer. <laughs> and it seemed that Wolf Blitzer was defending having troops in Syria. Now, can you imagine this? <laughs> just a few years ago, it would have been the complete reversal. You had everybody in the media who was arguing to get out of the Middle East and to, uh, to bring American troops back home. It's just because Trump did takes a position on it. It seems that the establishment in Washington and the media are now in lockstep, and no matter what decision Trump makes, the media and the establishment will take the opposite view. I mean, it could be, it's so hypocritical. You look at the border wall. Ten years ago, Chuck Schumer was arguing for stronger border security and supporting a wall because Donald Trump gets behind it. All of a sudden, Chuck Schumer completely does a 180, and I I feel like people don't know that that that's taking place. You rarely hear uh, the media point out some of that hypocrisy. So, so tr- Trump could be true to his word, and I think you just continue to see uh, those obstacles that the establishment throws up, and that you're absolutely right that many in the media will just gravitate toward the establishment position. What have we learned about
0: this man, Donald J. Trump, since in 2017 and 18, going into 2019?
1: Yeah, so two years in office, I mean, certainly a, a lot of accomplishments, uh, a lot of unpredictability. I think that that's one of the big things that, uh, that many people um Really don't know. I mean, you, you and I, working in the news business, wake up and a Trump tweet could could change everything. Uh, look at how he has single-handedly changed how the news does its its work. In the past, you would have a resignation of a cabinet secretary; it probably would have been leaked or first reported by the Associated Press or somebody. Now Trump breaks the news himself. So I mean, so many decisions are coming directly from the president of the United States. He's talking directly to the American people, and I think that that's changed the office of the presidency probably forever. I suppose that whoever f- succeeds Trump could, could go back to the way it's been done, but I, frankly, I don't know why you'd want to. I mean, Trump, in, in many ways, can drive the news cycle, and that's something that I think Obama struggled with, George W. Bush struggled with, Bill Clinton struggled with, and in many cases, Trump is just a master at doing that. Um, does it concern you
0: that it appears that the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court
1: is, in, is delving into trump 's agenda yeah well there's a couple of things I think that the Chief Justice has done i mean first of all he's, <coughs> he's challenged Trump when Trump said that you know it was uh, he uh, he referred to a, a federal judge as an Obama judge. Uh, what do you mean it meant is Obama appointed certain judges, they probably had meant. a more liberal philosophy, yeah. right? And the, the Chief Justice rebuked Trump and said there are there is no such thing as an Obama judge or a Bush judge or a Trump judge. Uh, there are, are federal judges who, who uphold the rule of law. Well we hope that they uphold the rule of law most of the time, as we know in some cases the judges sometimes take their, their own liberties in terms of their interpretation of the Constitution. But then there have been other cases, uh, a, a couple of notable examples toward the end of uh, 2018 where Chief Justice Roberts actually sided with the liberal judge justice is. Um, There was a case involving Planned Parenthood where uh, he came down, along with Brett Kavanaugh, I should note, uh, with the liberal judges. And uh, then there was an asylum case. Uh, in which, which recent. So uh, yeah, I think it is a bit concerning uh, to see the chief justice take some of these positions. I hope Do you that think there's he not does a personal ground. Do you
0: think he does it for the credibility of the court, for his own reputation, uh, his own relationship with the establishment? Because he is,
1: whether you like it or not, He's still human. He has these relationships. he absolutely does. Yes, and I and I think that uh, you saw it probably well well before Trump came to office. I mean, look at the Obamacare case when everybody expected that to be uh, Roberts to be with the conservatives, and he ended up coming up with this excuse that it was a tax, and therefore the law could stand. Uh, So it's not exactly a new phenomenon with John Roberts. I think you're absolutely right. He comes from the D.C. establishment. He was part of the the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. You don't get much more establishment than that. And I think part of it, I would hope it's not to preserve his own reputation, but I think that there is a part of it that goes into his thinking um, when it comes to uh, preserving the credibility of the court, and maybe he takes it a step too far in that regard. And, and certainly Clarence Thomas and some of the other judges uh, have written these strongly worded dissents against Roberts for, for the uh, rationale that he's tried to come up with. Um, where, is, where has the president consistently
0: been his own worst enemy?
1: Mm. I, I think the president can sometimes get out ahead of, himself, get out ahead of the policy on some Sometime? issues. Sometimes? Uh, let me give you an example. Sometimes? <laughs> some would say all the time. All the time, perhaps. Really? Uh, but I, I think of some of the foreign policy decisions in particular uh, because they have such uh, uh, significant ramifications on the global stage. So you take Syria, for instance. Uh, it seemed that the president uh, the president's decision uh, was, was made without uh, obviously having his national security team on board.
0: But like you said early on, He's been raising this issue. They told him six months ago with Bolton and Mattis, they would come yes. back with a solution. And he gets
1: frustrated and he just makes well, a decision. well they didn't honor their word. They didn't come up with a right. solution. Right. So he, he takes it into his own hands, right? And I but what I, I guess what I'm getting at here is just as he articulated in a nationally televised speech the strategy for Afghanistan, I think the American people would sometimes like to hear a little bit more details than a 280 character tweet. Have the president come out and explain his rationale for Syria. And we don't often get that. Sometimes we are just limited to tweets or we're limited to the sound bites. I think this president can actually do a very good job, when he's given State of the Union addresses, or when he's spoken to the nation in some of those nationally televised speeches, I think those have been some of his finest moments because he does have a way of connecting with the American people. And I think he's missed some opportunities to do that.
0: Um, you know, we, we mentioned the withdrawal, the announced withdrawal from Syria and Afghanistan. There is one um, aspect of society that is often overlooked in these decisions which I think has the profoundest impact, and that is the sons and the daughters and the families of these sons and daughters. And they seem to be more
1: than ecstatic about the president's announcement. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, in many cases, uh, they've sacrificed so much. Um, I have have friends and family uh, who serve and uh, certainly have seen the uh, firsthand. I mean, my brother-in-law and his family are are right now uh, overseas. Um, and will be there for the next uh, two and a half years. So, I mean, it certainly has, we're feeling the effects uh, firsthand in our family, not being able to celebrate holidays and such. So, yes, I think there is a, probably an excitement uh, to welcome mm-hmm. them back home. And I, I think at the same time, we have to look at the long-term implications. We certainly don't want Russia to go into a place like Syria and exert more influence and create a disabling uh, environment. But we don't,
0: the only thing we're doing is training. Right. And dropping missiles and bombs. Yeah, 2,000 troops. It's, yeah, 2000 it's relatively minimal Scaled down. Yeah, minic- it really minic- is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's the optics. Right. Um, but how much of an impact will Mattis leaving have on Trump? in 2019.
1: I don't know if it'll have a significant of effect okay. now than it would have early. I think in the uh, two years that, that Mattis has, has been in office, Trump has certainly become more confident in his foreign policy and national security decisions. Early on, I think there was some concern and worry uh, as he was setting things up. And remember the whole episode with Steve Bannon and being on the National Security Council and Michael Flynn and, and how quickly those things I feel like with John Bolton in the White House as a national security advisor, you have a great ally there. You have Mike Pompeo at the Department of State. And he's going to find somebody as the defense secretary and probably somebody who believes in his vision <coughs> and will be able to execute and carry it out. So I, I'm not particularly concerned. I just think that, that Trump, again, uh, will have a couple of opportunities in, in uh, the new year uh, uh, to articulate his view. And he's going to have not only a defense secretary, but an interior secretary who's new. Uh, you're going to have a new attorney general. So there's uh, some natural transition that happens after the second year. It's happened with a lot of presidents, and I have no doubt this president will just be fine.
0: I want to focus on something with the media here. I want don't, I to don't know if you feel as if they cross the line, do a disservice to the country, or their agenda is not necessarily what's in the best interest of the country. And that is Mick Mulvaney, who was just announced as the president's chief of staff, they went back to 2016 and printed uh, when he was running for office, an interview where he said the president is just not a good person. It's a terrible human being. And that was on all the networks, all the papers. They knew exactly how the president would react to it, and exactly he reacted that way. I mean, what does it say to you about the media when you further divide the White House, further divide the country, and further feed the angst and the pettiness of this yeah. president.
1: Well, in and, and this particular example, it, 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 as you said, it wasn't anything new. It was a years-old yeah. interview. But you know what they and, were doing. And, and I and, it, it, and maybe it was new to a lot of people. It wasn't new to me. No. I mean, I've seen those comments reported before. And and so, to me, it was exactly as you describe it. They were just trying to feed into that tension and, and create a division within the White House. And. Look, should Mulvaney have said it? Probably not. He probably just should have kept his powder dry at the time. I think there were other members of the Freedom Caucus who, who, who took a, a different tact. But he did say it. Uh, should that disqualify him well, from...
0: Mulvaney, wasn't, uh, Mulvaney was seeking re-election. He was in a debate right. he yeah.
1: said that. Yes, yeah. yeah. In all fairness. Well, he, exactly. He was looking out for his, his, his situ, situation as well. Exactly. So uh, the media does this. I mean, it's the gotcha journalism that I think so many people have, have come to dislike. It's a reason why the media's approval, although I think it's seen some recent upticks uh, in, in favorability, remains to, at, at a relatively historic low. Does, does it surprise you that
0: Pelosi's and Schumer's Approval ratings are lower than the
1: president? It doesn't
0: surprise me. And no one yeah. talks about it. They're Nobody. Lord. About it. Nobody yeah. talks about it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, all congressional leaders. I mean, not just them, but I mean, I think that Congress has low approval ratings for <laughs> for a number of reasons. Now, uh, they have. We started talking. Started the show talking about promises. Talk about a body of people that have not been able to, to keep their promises. I mean, in many respects you could go down the list and they've been unable to get things done. Or they do these things in a last room, back, uh, back room deal uh, that, uh, that is not the way that the American people want things done. The thing that I love most about that confrontation being between Pelosi, Schumer, and Trump is that Pelosi wanted a, to retreat to a back room and, and talk, and Trump's insisted on doing it in front of the cameras. I think the American people probably at the end of the day, although it can be awkward at times to see the political leaders squabbling, they like to see that. They like to see them hash out their differences <clears throat> rather than doing it in a smoke-filled room uh, behind closed doors where uh, probably the loser at the end of the day is the taxpayer. Yeah,
0: I, I, would, I would prefer if the president says to the incoming Speaker of the House, that the media is gonna be private, that they're not blindsided when they walked in a room and the media is there. I, I don't think, I, I I just don't think.
1: Right, I think you should be, you, right, I think you should uh, be sh- sh- transparent and honest, but at the same at the same time, I think we are, uh, the American people are, are fed up with how business is done in Washington, and I think that goes to the heart of your point about Pelosi and Schumer's approval ratings. That's why they don't like them. So how will they work together?
0: What will they work together on that, they can accomplish for the betterment of the American people? And can it get any more acrimonious? And what about impeachment?
1: I, I, here's my, we'll start with impeachment. My thought on impeachment is that the Democrats will wait as long as possible. So they will want to do this in 2020 as the campaign is starting to pick up because what better way to disrupt the presidential campaign than have impeachment proceedings going on? There are Democrats who want to move quickly and get it done now uh, because they think that the best, they, they want to uphold that promise that they've made to the voters and I think that leadership is going to want to delay. So that was that's my, my thought on the timing of impeachment. If it happens at all, I think that there's a strong likelihood that there's so much pressure from the left that they will want it to happen. Uh, what can they work together on? Well, everybody talks about infrastructure. I think the is an area that conservatives are concerned about, because uh, certainly we don't want to see a massive spending uh, bill come through, uh, similar to President Obama's uh, stimulus bill, which we saw, we heard a lot about shovel-ready jobs. I don't think it was the the boost that we needed uh, for our economy. I think that what Trump was able to do in terms of tax reform, cutting the regulations, those are the things that drove the economic growth over the last couple of years. Uh, it's going to be harder to do another tax bill, obviously, with Democrats. They want to repeal the tax cuts uh, that Trump signed into law. Uh, so there will be opportunities, probably, on some national security areas. I mean, that remain. Uh, and yeah, they'll certainly be able to pass the National Defense Authorization Act and things of that nature that remain uncontroversial in Washington. But a lot of the issues will certainly be contentious, and I don't think you're going to see some of the bipartisan uh, victories that we saw here at the end of this year like criminal justice reform. There's just not those big stakes issues that are probably going to be But it's come passed. Up. That one did pass, but it passed, <coughs> it passed because they got it done before Pelosi could take the Speaker, because you know what she intended to do? She intended to take that bill in 2019 add a whole bunch of liberal priorities, and there were no way that you would be able to get those Republican senators on board. So I think it was important that they did it. And it's a significant achievement for President Trump. And I think it uh, will will play uh, very well uh, as he goes about his uh, presidential uh, reelection campaign in 2020 and to speak to new audiences that perhaps he wasn't able to speak to in 2016. How is Kavanaugh doing? Uh, Kavanaugh is doing okay. (laughs) Uh, Certainly, there have been a couple of decisions, this Planned Parenthood one that I mentioned that uh, really uh, drew some concern, particularly from the pro-life community. Uh, They wanted, there were three justices, Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch, who wanted to take this case on Planned Parenthood and let the Supreme Court decide. Uh, Clarence Thomas had a very strong dissent, which countered what uh, Kavanaugh, Roberts, and the other liberal justices were were, uh, trying to do. And uh, so in that respect, it's disappointing because in that case, it was really only a matter of taking a a case. It wasn't even a a decision Uh, Kavanaugh could have voted in the end against uh, uh, or for Planned Parenthood either way. Uh, So we'll continue to watch Kavanaugh. I think he's probably being a little bit cautious Armstrong, particularly because of the nature of his confirmation. It was so contentious. And uh, and you saw uh, some people like Susan Collins come out after his decision <coughs> on Planned Parenthood and say that uh, this justified her, her vote for him. Certainly not. <laughs>
0: well, they may have been communicating. Yeah, maybe.
1: <laughs> put anything past.
0: Your final <laughs> thoughts for? 2018 going into 2019. Yeah,
1: you know, I look. I think it's been a remarkable year in in Washington uh, in, in many respects. I mean, you look at the stories that uh, that have have taking place in 2018, uh, certainly Kavanaugh hearings being one of the biggest um, media spectacles and circuses that I've seen in my time in Washington. Uh, we could have another Supreme Court uh, opening. Who knows? Uh, at the we end of the term. We definitely pay for Justice uh, Ginsburg. We, sh- we definitely are praying for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who had the, the cancerous growth removed. Uh, but you have several justices who are up there. Uh, so that's one of the big things we're going to have our eyes on, probably for June of 2019, is if whether or not you'll hear another retirement decision. And Armstrong, I think the other thing that's going to happen in, in Washington this year is you are going to, despite all of the contentiousness and uh, and uh, hostility that Pelosi and Schumer and Trump will will no doubt have, you have to remember at the end of the day that President Trump is a businessman. He's a deal maker. You know, we should go back and look at art of the deal and how he likes to negotiate. And so. There is the possibility we may see a different president. Uh, We will see uh, certainly some new members of his cabinet, and uh, that'll be interesting to see how they shape the debate.
0: Well, I don't know if we're going to see a different president, uh, more or less, but certainly he is conditioned for the fight.
1: He is. He loves the battleground. He he certainly is. And he's prepared for a tough reelection in 2020, I'll tell you that. So, I mean, I think a lot of what you're going to see in 2019 is probably laying the groundwork for what happens in 2020. Rob Bluey, happy
0: 2019.
1: Armstrong, thank Always you. a pleasure. Good day from the Strong Cast.
0: I'm your host, Armstrong Williams.